Does your life change once a month because of your period? Oh, what a disaster. Let me tell it to you straight. Unexplainable can change the way you feel about your period. For the next two weeks, Unexplainable is doing a series on the scientific treasures hidden in periods. You wouldn't think so, but it's wonderful. Fabulous. I call it just plain smart. Remember, there's a feeling with Unexplainable. It can actually change the way you feel about your period. This week on Unexplainable, The Bleeding Edge. Follow Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. This week on The Gray Area, Stephen Markley, author of the novel The Deluge, on why he was compelled to write an epic book about climate change. If 50 years from now we have used this period in history to turn the corner on the climate crisis, and you and I and everybody listening to this was a part of that, that is an incredible way to spend one's life. That's This Week on The Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, my guest today, a, a returning Weeds guest, is Mike Consul from the Roosevelt Institute. We are doubling down on the Federal Reserve here in the, the waning days of my tenure on The Weeds. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I wrote a piece a decade ago like urging progressives to pay more attention to this subject. It is getting a little bit more attention now, but it's going to get more attention on this show, damn it. I'm sure there's going to be some cheap ratings ploys uh, coming after my time. But Mike is a, is, is a great guest to talk about this because he is really knowledgeable about the regulatory issues that have been sort of in play in the discussion of, of Jay Powell's tenure, but I think not actually talked about in that much detail. So, I mean, I guess a good place to start is just like, what happened with banking regulation under the Trump administration or Powell's, you know, joint tenure with Trump? Like, what is the critique about? Sure. Can I start one step back and talk a little bit about what Dodd-Frank did? just as a background. Yeah, let's go back. Dodd-Frank. Sure, Dodd-Frank. So Dodd-Frank, in response to the financial crisis of 2008. Um, remember that The Obama one. administration passed. Yeah, it was a big one. At the, time. <laughs> <laughs> the Obama administration passed the Dodd-Frank Financial uh, Reform Act. It did a lot of things, but things very relevant for Powell and Trump um, is that it took banks that were $50 billion in si- asset size and over and put them under enhanced prudential regulations. Um, these are largely the largest 50 banks. So these are not community banks, which tend to be under a billion in size. Dodd-Frank said in the statute, it wrote down $50 billion. If you are above this size, you are subject to a lot more scrutiny in two pieces that are very relevant here. One is enhanced capital requirements, which is to say that banks like that need to fund themselves more with equity. They need to fund themselves in a way such that they can take losses without collapsing or panicking or failing in a catastrophic and quick way. And another thing that they did was something called living wills, which is the banks had to write down a plan for if they failed, how could they fail? You know, Lehman Brothers went into bankruptcy and caused a huge panic. And the idea was that for financial firms, bankruptcy is not a really good option. And for smaller banks like community banks, you have the FDIC, which can kind of go in and take over a failing firm. But you couldn't do that with these bigger banks, these mega banks, these banks that are involved in a lot of complicated financial instruments or have multiple 
international exposures and so forth. So the idea was to like have the banks fund themselves with more equity uh, in a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different types of capital requirements and also write down and be prepared to fail in such a way that would make it easier for officials at the FDIC to take them over and wind them down. Yeah. So with a with small bank, to just go even more further afield, right? I was in, uh, in in Maine last summer. There's a lot of small banks there. I was in uh, Texas where there's a lot of very small banks. And if like a really small bank goes bankrupt, the FDIC will usually just like sell it to some other bank that, you know, wants the branches and, and the facilities. Or if nobody wants that, they, they take their little pool of FDIC money and they just pay out the people, you know, who had the deposits there and they go someplace else with their business. And it's like, it's no biggie. You get up to these 50 biggest banks, you know, your key corps, your allies, and way up to Citigroup's Bank of America. And it just like, it, it wouldn't work logistically. The antitrust implications of trying to sell Wells Fargo to another giant bank would be enormous. You couldn't just do it over the weekend, obviously. And also the banks are involved in like a million different lines of business. And that's sort of the point about the living wills, right? Is that you need to provide some kind of documentation of like, what are you doing with your business so that these different lines of business could be frozen or separated or, or dealt with in a reasonably swift time period, rather than just doing a kind of chaotic bailout or a chaotic bank failure, right? I mean, the, the concern was that in the financial crisis, you had this kind of sharp disjuncture. You could do the bankruptcy option, which has a lot of negative consequences for other people, or you could do the bailout option, which seems to have like not enough negative consequences for some of the people responsible for the failure of the bank. Yeah, absolutely. And though Dodd-Frank did a ton of stuff, it um, you know it harmonized consumer regulators into a dedicated consumer regulator, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It moved derivatives into clearinghouses. It did a ton of things. When it came to the big banks, the banks over $50 billion in size, the banks, and not just we're saying bank, but like things that act like banks, things that maybe are a bank, but also an investment bank, things that are an investment bank, but act like a commercial bank, like the kind of hodgepodge of, of bank holding company law. And um I am summarizing quickly and greatly here, so feel free to yell at me on Twitter. Uh, handle is at Dylan Matthews if you really flood those <laughs> mentions with esoteric bank law if you're upset with the summary. But when it comes to the biggest banks, these are the big things like bank capital and living wills. Are, these are just core. These are not superfluous. These are not like nice to haves. These are foundational for what you want to do. And they're the things where you really want to go far because we think bank capital rules have very little cost for the economy as a whole. You're largely just changing how banks fund themselves and end users of firms have a lot of options. So the cost of those to the economy as a whole might even be zero, but they're very negligible in terms of like everyday people who need resources and financing. And the benefits are quite big, no matter what the crisis is. If the crisis is in the corporate sector, capital requirements and living wills help. If it's in the household sector, it helps. If it's from climate change, if it's from rapid decarbonization, no matter what the problem is, these things help. And living wills is also just good internal risk management. It just like says, you know, you have to like make sure you're going to do this because the failure point is where we really hit the road. So this, this is exactly where we want to have strong regulations. And let's. Uh, I think the the lack of cost is sort of important to dig into here because obviously there is a cost to participants in the industry who enjoy having a very high return on capital. Well, you know, we we talked about this on yesterday's show, but you know, if you can finance your investment with a lot of debt, 
then your upside is enormous if the investment pays off well. So, you know, people like to do that if they can get away with it. Normally in life, it's hard <laughs> to get people to lend you money to make speculative investments. It's a heads I win, tails you lose sort of situation. But if there's a sense that you might get bailed out, you know, you can do it. And this is why we need to regulate banks. The people involved would like you to believe that this is very costly to the economy, that by making it less profitable to sort of be in banking, you are going to reduce the availability of credit, of capital, you know, to people who, who rely on banks to get the money. But you say that that's not the case. So like, why is it that, you know, if I want a mortgage, I want a small business loan, like, like, why doesn't it putting tighter capital requirements on banks make that harder for me as a customer? Sure. So from the bank's point of view, it is substituting one form of funding for another. So instead of funding with debt, it is funding with equity or retained earnings. Uh, and so it is substituting on the liability side. It's basically saying, we're going to change our balance sheet so that we're not using this thing that's we like doing more. And certainly at the margins, we think that the cost of switching from one to the other has very little cost for that bank itself. You know, like if you increase capital requirements 10%, maybe the cost of capital goes up less than half a percent. Like that's the kind of small basis point kind of change. And even those might be exaggerated. You know, it's really tough to do these studies, but that's that's the kind of scale we're talking about. Also, particularly for real economy firms that need money for investments, they themselves have other options too. So like, you know, you're tightening these regulations on the very biggest banks who we think have real stressors, but like there are other things that can lend, community banks can lend, other things, you know, so you're internalizing the costs of the failure of these largest banks over $50 billion in size, but there are other financing instruments in the economy as well. So between those two things, there's a tendency to think that this has very little co low cost. And we see this because since 2008 to the COVID crisis, we essentially more than double capital requirements in the banking system. And it's across all measures. And there's a lot of different ways to, to measure this. But in general, the banks become significantly more capitalized in the aftermath of the crisis and the years after the crisis. And then they keep that rate there because Dodd-Frank forces them to, even though they're angry about it. And there's no system-wide decline in lending or increase in lending costs, because those are also largely determined by the Federal Reserve and aggregate demand. And um, another way to approach is that if an activity is profitable, someone will lend to it and they'll find a way to lend to it. And that, that's kind of the flip side of that equation. So, you know, we did this big experiment where we rapidly increased capital requirements in the economy. And basically, no one says that it had a huge cost. The fight is whether or not the cost is even really that measurable. And you can just go on. I mean, go apply for a mortgage tomorrow. Like it's there's a lot of credit available in the United States of America. But then so, OK, so we, we were going to talk about power. So the capital requirements, they went up under Obama because of Dodd-Frank. And then they went down again somewhat uh, under under the Trump administration. So the reason to talk about 50 billion in size, I think, is uh is a good way to approach it, a set of things that were deregulated. So people ask, where was the big bipartisan infrastructure bill of the Trump years? And there actually was one in 2018. There was a big bipartisan push to deregulate parts of Dodd-Frank. It was called something Orwellian. Uh, what is it? The Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act, uh, which was basically very few of any of those things. And what it did was Congress said, we're going to take that $50 billion and move it to $250 billion and say, 
we're no longer going to worry about 50 to 250. If there's any worries in between there, the Federal Reserve is authorized explicitly in this act to step in and do things to make sure baseline protections are in. But we no longer want this enhanced regulation until you get to 250 because we as Congress, bipartisan group in Congress, want to really just focus on the biggest players. Now, there's a lot of regional mid-sized banks in that, which are very influential and purple states and very influential in terms of their power in Congress. And they asked for this and they got it. We were very opposed to it. The financial reform community in general was very opposed to it. I think there was an argument you could have moved 50 to 100. Um, Janet Yellen, when she was at uh, the Fed, Barney Frank himself later on, said like that might have been good. But going to 250 was really far beyond what people had thought. That deregulated several trillion dollars in an important way. And these are these are like, you know, M&T Bank, Santander, Ameriprise. I mean, these are banks that are, you know, they like have stadium sponsorship deals. Um, they're large, large enterprises. They're not the, the biggest banks in America, but they, you know, I mean, I think you have, I think you should have at least the question of can you really wind these these firms down in a clear, well-organized way? You know, and that's the kind of basic regulatory concern. Um, and they're being now let off the hook to an extent. Yeah, absolutely. And so Jay Powell becomes Federal Reserve Chair and Quarles is, uh, Randy Quarles is uh, um, you know, in charge of, of regulations within the FOMC. And they do two things that really upset the financial reform community. One is that they basically zero out regulations that weren't even in that bill for firms between 100 and 250 billion in size. So we're we fought against this bill back back when it uh, was passing. And a lot of moderate Dem staffers were like, you know, if there's a real problem between 100 and 250 billion in size, like the Fed will step in. And it was like, no, they're not. Like that's like it felt like almost like, oh, my God, you really do think like that. Like, if you believe that, I think you, you might even just be naive here. And the Fed not only didn't step in, they removed living will requirements. They just eliminated them for banks up until $250 billion. And they eliminated something called the liquidity capital requirement, but basically a, a certain kind of capital requirement that says you need to be able to make payments for 30 days in case the markets freeze up. Um, they just eliminated that for up to 250 So they took what Congress told them to do, which is to say tailor and right size for up to 250 and just swept a lot of stuff away for Banks that don't get the headlines as the bad actors in the financial economy in the way like Goldman Sachs might get a headline that's very bad or do do things that really stand out in the public, but banks that do pose a real financial risk that could collapse and could have real problems. They do that. The next thing they do, and they do this over the next several years going into COVID, is that they say, you know what? We're so interested in only focusing on the largest banks. We're going to extend a significant amount of regulatory relief in these areas to banks up to $700 billion in size. So they're now taking kind of what the directive was of that bill, but then going way outside the legislation of it and basically saying we are going to make living wills required less often. So like every six years for banks up to 700 billion in size. And we're going to significantly weaken capital requirements, particularly the kind of capital requirements that are like the most strict, but also the ones the banks hate the most, things like liquidity ratios and things like that. And so now you've taken Congress saying, like, we want to weaken on some of these mid-sized banks. And then the Fed goes further in the weakening of those banks and then takes it way up the, the scale ladder. And Powell, under testifying, can say, hey, we preserved capital requirements. We preserved all the things for the biggest players, the scariest players, the banks in the trillions in size, the top five banks. 
the global banks. But they also, and then we just tailored relief for these smaller banks, but they're not small banks. And the relief is pretty ex- extensive and things that we should be worried about. Yeah. And, you know, because you're now getting down to a group that is small enough to, to name names um, like the, the 700 billion threshold is significant because you, you leave above the threshold JP Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs. Right. And those are worldwide banking companies that are headquartered in the United States of America. Under that threshold is really big regional banks, you know, so you have like PNC, right, is is a good example of this. Like there are large parts of America where like there is no PNC and you may be listening to this and are like, what the fuck are they even talking about? But in the parts of the country that PNC does serve, it's like a big bank. You know, like they have branches in tons of cities. They're all over. They've got all these services. U.S. Bank Corp is like that. Capital One. Uh, Then there's also all these banks that are the medium-sized American subsidiaries of global banks, right? So it's a kind of a weird distinction. You don't, I think, necessarily want to treat, you know, uh, BNC Paribas um, as like, uh, or, or Deutsche Bank as like, cuddly local players. They're not that big in the American banking sector specifically, but they're pretty big and they're part of these very complicated global financial firms. So that's sort of the concern, right, is that we have meaningfully increased the kind of instability, uh, at least potential instability in the system and, and done so more than, like Congress was pushing in this direction, but the Fed could have pushed back, but instead, like, ran down the hill. Exactly. And, you know, their arguments are that there are tailoring. That was the big word of the time. They're tailoring requirements, which it's important to note two things. When, as you said, like, these are banks that are big and pose real complex risks and could, in, in a crisis, be hard to take down. Or, you know, they're not just they're not just a bunch of community banks stacked on top of each other big. They're, like, big in a sense that is more complex than some of their parts. And two is that they're not they're not increasing things elsewhere. So they're not even really rebalancing in a certain way where they're like, we're not going to worry about capital requirements because we're really going to tackle shadow banking or we're really going to go after activities. Like it's it's not like that kind of rebalancing. It's just like, we're going to keep it for the biggest players, the kind that if we tried to deregulate, we might get more of a political headache given what has happened at Wells Fargo and Goldman and so many other things that, over the years. Uh, these things that kind of get under the headlines, but you know, like it's something to worry about and something that was worried about going into COVID. Right. Okay. So let's let's take a break here, and then then I want to try to put this in some perspective. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to the weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. 
whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burrow's furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds. So, you know, I, I don't want to downplay the significance of these financial regulation issues. That's like why we did a whole segment explaining what they are and what what the what the topic and what the significance is. But you also um, wrote a paper recently that's about sort of the changed thinking on macroeconomic policy uh, that sort of also came through the Federal Reserve as an institution at around this time. And, you know, I, I want to talk about that. Like, what what is the kind of transformation that we've seen in terms of thinking about, about the labor market and the Fed's other, and I think sort of fundamentally more significant role there? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's interesting to do do one more time machine uh, on on the You know, when people talk about the Great Recession, I think they often, if they're listening to economic podcasts, maybe they have a, a story of the Great Recession that's about the bailouts and Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs, or they have a story that's very important but very well rehearsed about whether or not the Obama stimulus was too narrow and small and technocratic, and whether or not they did enough on housing or moved too quickly on uh, moving to uh, pivoting to austerity and uh, whether or not they, the Fed could do anything or if it was out of ammo. Um, you know, a story that's very much about the Great Recession is a story of 2008 to about 2011, maybe 2013. But there's another story about the Great Recession that's 2015 to 2019. It's all about how low unemployment can go and where the economy should have leveled out. And I think after the election of Trump, there was a lot of reason for people to want to believe that unemployment unemployment at that point is a little under 5%. There's a reason they want to believe unemployment can't really get below 4.5%. Maybe it can't get under, and it certainly can't get under 4%. And if it got under 4%, it certainly couldn't stay under there very long without causing damages. This is a pretty conventional consensus argument in 2016, 2017. Some of it is motivational that they don't want the Trump tax cuts to proceed. Uh, and so they want to think that we're at full employment and, and thus this will just cause, you know, inflation and cause problems. Some of it's very well felt by people who are really bound by the idea that if the Fed overshot on got unemployment too low, it would have really disastrous consequences. Uh, and you would really risk the well-being of the people you are nominally meant to help at that point. I think one one way to think about this, you know, if you want to situate yourself politically, is you go back to the 2016 campaign and Trump is saying, like, 
basically like you take the employment to population ratio and you just like assume everybody not working is unemployed and like the real unemployment rate under Obama is like 45% or something. And so then people would do, you know, debunkings and and fact check stories about that. Because like, of course, that's crazy, right? Like they're retired people, they're full-time students, they're, you know, they're stay-at-home parents. There's lots of reasons people don't work. But then you have to decide when you're writing that fact check item, like how far do you Right. And one thing you could say is like the unemployment rate is actually quite low. And like Trump is just totally full of shit, as well as saying something factually untrue. Like the sentiment is false. The economy now here at the end of the Obama administration is like firing on all cylinders. Another way you could do it is to be like this thing Trump is saying is not true. That being said, if you zero in on the prime age, like 25 to 55 year olds, people who probably aren't full time college students, people who aren't retired, and you look at their employment to population ratio, it is below its historical peaks. And it is below its historical peaks, despite the fact that the population has gotten better educated and that there are fewer people with small kids at home than, than there were in the late 90s. So you would say, look, like what Trump is saying is not true. At the same time, the critique that eight, nine years after the Great Recession, we are still not back to full employment, like that is right. And some people like me were saying that and other people, which was like not it was in part there was a partisan motive to say it wasn't true, but it was also just like what a lot of people thought. And it was is genuinely true that the unemployment rate was at a low level. But if you looked at these other indicators like wage growth and employment population ratio, there were signs of real weakness there. And this was like a big argument, right? 2016, 2017. I think a lot of people for a lot of different reasons were on both sides of that debate. Yeah, absolutely. And the participation rate is key because a, a lot of the reason unemployment came down in the mid 2010s was people just left the labor force. And, you know, there's harsh kind of reactionary ways of like, this is about people playing video games um, or people who just don't want to work. But there's also like a story that has a more affirmative role for government that's not full employment. It's like, well, we need job training programs or we need outreach or there's like, you know, the way it cuts if you think that that is a actual shift that is independent of the business cycle, recreates a very robust partisan debate, but it's sort of orthogonal to whether or not we're actually at full employment or not, which would overdetermine it. And sure enough, unemployment continued to go down. There's a long story about a bunch of things that happen we can we can go into, but unemployment gets below 4%. It stays below 4% for two years. It gets to 3.5% and bounces around there for six months, and there is no pressure on inflation going into COVID. There's every sense, uh, notably, participation improves dramatically. And a lot of this doom saying that we're just going to work less structurally, uh, there's just going to be less people in the labor force, and thus unemployment can come down because we're just no longer, people are being brought into the labor force, people who were incarcerated or disabled. Employers are seeking them out. They're training them. Uh, you see robust wage growth in 2019, the black-white unemployment gap gets to its lowest level in 50 years towards the end of 2019. And there's good reasons to think it would have continued to maybe even shrink to zero. So in 2019, and it's weird because it goes into this very partisan mode, there's a pretty robust economic recovery predicated on full employment. And full employment doesn't do everything, but it does a lot of things. 
And, and, and the, you know, a key thing because you, you mentioned inflation, right? I mean, a key part of this is that, you know, workers were seeing wage gains, particularly at the lower end, because, you know, they have bargaining power. Employers will pay a premium, I think, to get an experienced person under those circumstances. But it wasn't particularly inflationary because it turned out that there were all these people on the margins of the labor market, right? You weren't. Some people were getting raises because people valued their experience, that they, they had that bargaining power. But employers weren't like genuinely out of people who could be put to work. Instead, you were seeing opportunities going to people who had been out of the labor force. There was more investment in training people who maybe didn't know how to do the job or just like didn't have a lot of work experience, right? I mean, there's tons of evidence that if you are out of the workforce for a long time, it becomes harder to get a new job. It seems like employers, if they can pick, don't want to hire someone who has big gaps on their resume. I think for pretty obvious reasons, your like first choice for a job is like probably not a convicted criminal right out of prison. But it's good for society to have a situation in which like somebody has to roll the dice on the re-entering felons because like you you don't it's like you both understand why people don't want to hire like recovering drug addicts and things like that but as a country we don't want those people to be unemployable in part for like squishy humanitarian reasons but also like that's how people get their lives back together right like if nobody will give you a chance uh you got like a big, a big, big problem. And we were seeing in 2019 that that's what was happening, right? That we were able to expand the labor force into these different terrains and all kinds of gaps were going away because it's, it's just, it's so costly to discriminate, you know, when, when there's not a huge pool of unemployed workers. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you have places like the Congressional Budget Office, for instance, which runs a bunch of statistics. It's, it's kind of like a government agency around numbers. And some numbers are very straightforward, like how much do we spend on healthcare? But some numbers have to be estimated, like the natural rate of unemployment. And so they're still sitting around saying unemployment, the natural rate, the rate under which it can't get below without there being problems is still 4%, even though it's been three and a half percent for six months, right? Like, so you get you get to see the, the delinking of the statistics that had kind of governed the way we run macro. And then Fed chairs, Fed officials, most notably Powell, starting to talk much more openly about, do we even know these things in advance of encountering them? Can they really be estimated? Are we in a new era? What happens with things like, you know, are we, so, um, you know, in 2019, Jay Powell as Fed chair said, you know, we need to see heat before we say there's a hot economy. And I do not see that. Like we could still get unemployment lower or perhaps more importantly, get participation higher. This had a period in which a lot of people were nervous to like even get to. And Powell's still being very bold there. And he's starting to say a lot of things. And I think he starts to articulate uh, a kind of what I think of as kind of like a four-part transformation of what macroeconomics will be. And I think it's important to understand that this was not like a no-brainer, right? That I, I mean, in, in, that you can easily imagine. I mean, I, I want you as a reader to put out of mind what you know, right? And there's a story, and the Fed had started raising interest rates a little bit in Obama's final year. They were doing it a little bit in Trump's first year. And you can imagine a world in which they continue on that course, and they are pointing to the official Congressional Budget Office estimate 
of the natural rate of unemployment, of the output gap. They are pointing to these tax cuts that Donald Trump enacted as stimulating an economy that doesn't need stimulus. Trump is tweeting that this is horrible. And people are writing articles, you know, in the establishment press, in the center-left press, and the articles are saying this is another example of Donald Trump casting aside expertise, all these guys with PhDs and their longstanding workhorse models are saying you should be raising rates. Uh, you are standing with, you know, the Democrats in Congress who did not vote for Trump's tax bill. They said it would add to the deficit in an unnecessary way. And, you know, you're just like you're you're doing these stories. It's like Trump is tearing down all constraints on his action. It's terrible. Uh, we need to celebrate uh, the experts and, and trust the macroeconomic science that says we need to do this. It was a non-obvious choice to embrace the idea that the economy could do better. But it also wasn't just, and it never was, like just some Trumpian piece of uh, enthusiasm. I mean, people who, you know, if you if you read me, if your work, uh, your colleague J.W. Mason, Lael Brainerd, whose name is in the mix here, you know, was, was doing these speeches uh, from her role on the Fed board. There was a group, I think a fairly bipartisan group, that had been saying uh, for several years prior that like, no, this was being misestimated. And Powell, you know, he he did embrace what like Trump was tweeting that he should do. But he was also embracing an alternate account of like, how we should think about these things, right? And that basically, you know, you've got to run wait until there actually is inflation, until you start worrying about inflation, rather than, you know, steering ahead of the curve all the time, and never having the opportunity to like, let something good happen. Yeah, absolutely. I remember there was this one hearing in the House, uh, Powell did in 2019, where, uh, just to give you a sense of the temperature at this time, um, the squad, uh, you know, Representative Ocasio-Cortez and others, pushed Powell about the whether or not we were at full employment, the fact that unemployment had come down so much, but inflation had not gone up. And Powell was agreeing with them that the Fed had gotten it wrong. But um, the bulk of the questions were about Trump threatening to fire Powell and getting Powell to say he would not resign, he'd finish out his term if, if, if asked whether or not the Fed was independent of Trump. And I think Trump probably hurt the cause of full employment by putting such blunt pressure on it. But it gave you a sense of just how people, because people were focused on, well, like, is the Fed independent? Is, you know, what what is Trump going to do with it? And there's always less attention about these very technical, but incredibly important questions about full employment. But at that moment, there was a sense of that people did not catch the real transformation that was happening there. And it wasn't until I think COVID, and then also this specific moment where we're now articulating it and thinking it through much more publicly. Right. And, you know, this, I mean, I think, again, to, to the point, and some people may have been skeptical at the time, but there was real rethinking happening from the chair, from some of the people on the board, from some of the people at the staff. I think probably a president who was less of a maniac about this actually could have gotten this done quietly faster because, you know, because there's a sense, right? I mean, there, there's a feeling at central banks that they have to not be seen as taking orders from the White House. You know, so it, it was a little bit counterproductive, I think, it, in that regard. But you really saw when COVID happened, when we had a presidential transition, right, that there has been real stickiness to this. And you could say, right, I mean, I forget what the what the latest uh, CPI number was, but it was, you know, 
It was high. It was like higher than people would want it to be. And that that is the the fruits of a change in thinking, right? That it is a the way I would put it, right, is that, you know, if you shoot at a target and you always miss to the left, like you're not aiming correctly. It's not good per se to have inflation, but the fact that inflation never happened essentially for a 20 year span is a sign that like the people I'm mixing my metaphors, but like the people steering the ship were not actually doing it correctly. And if you're if you're doing it with a, a balanced approach, like sometimes you go too far in both directions. I mean, hopefully you just are a genius and absolutely understand like all the dynamics in every supply chain all the time. But that, you know, we now have a, a balanced approach to macroeconomic policy. It delivered a lot of benefits for people in 2019. It sustained incomes during a very severe crisis. And it has gotten us a employment recovery that has been way more rapid than we saw from the Great Recession. Yeah. So um, my, my favorite statistic, and we'll see if this holds up, but certainly uh, pre-Delta and uh, at the beginning of the summer, most macro analysts thought that the economy in terms of GDP would be larger at the end of next year than predictions of where it would be pre-COVID. So there's, there's not an easy way to say that out loud uh, as a sentence, but basically GDP will have been higher as a result of COVID than the predictions were beforehand, which is nuts to think about. So many people died needlessly. So many businesses closed. But the fact that we actually took an opportunity to do fiscal stimulus well, we spent probably five to six trillion dollars. I have to double check that. Uh, we reduced poverty. We took real efforts to in invest and do other things. Whether or not it's exactly above or below, the fact that you can recover from a recovery, uh, recover from a recession entirely is a huge deal. Like We lost so much of what was projected to happen under the Great Recession. You know, like, you know, there was a, a sense in which the economy would have grown at some level and that we never got back to that level. We never even came close to that level and it kept getting revised down and we kept missing that revision. So the fact that you could intervene so aggressively and have a Fed chair who's very much believes these things, you know, even now uh, Powell is still testifying saying that we can get back to three and a half percent unemployment. You know, the rule that we should probably talk about that he worked with the FOMC to put together a rule that allows for periods of higher than expected inflation to allow us to overshoot the target, you know, the, the target metaphor you just brought up, for a period of time to allow catch up. This was something that was floated by some of the more lefty members of the Federal Reserve community during the Great Recession. Uh, Notably, uh, Charles Evans uh, from uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago talked about a so-called Evans rule, which would temporarily allow this uh, back in 2011. And now it's the rule and we're stress testing it. You know, like Powell doesn't like stress tests on mid-sized banks, but he's stress testing his rule about how robust of a recovery you can have right now. And so far, he is standing by it in a period where he could have buckled from it or said, you know what? We got to kind of like, actually, we were just too optimistic about 2019. He still has that sense of wait and see, understanding that the risks of a weak recovery are greater than that of overheating, understanding that we can have a much more dynamic expansion of employment than we had thought in decades past. And I think the real question is not so much whether or not you can get a dovish Fed share, um, because maybe you can, but whether or not we can, and not just inside the Fed, but as a community, institutionalize and make this much more expansive regime, a regime that's not going to tolerate long recessions and it's really going to focus on full employment, the norm and the way a more austere Fed became the norm after the 1970s. 
Yeah. Um, here, let, let's take another break and let's let's talk about that rule and, and what it means and what other rules have meant. So when I was a when I was a young blogger, people talked about the the Taylor rule, which came from a macroeconomist named John Taylor. This is a I don't know. It's like a formula. There's some variables in it, and it, it says what the interest rate should be. And for a long time, I don't think the Fed ever sort of explicitly followed the the Taylor rule. But the understanding was that this guy's work was was influential, and that it was um, you know kind of a, a way to think about uh, monetary policy that that people took very seriously. And during the Great Recession, in its sort of most acute phases, even one thing people would say is, "Look." Mathematically, like the Taylor rule says, we should be in deeply negative interest rates, which we're not going to do for various reasons. And that's like part of the case for Obama's uh, fiscal stimulus. So, you know, it's like you, you can do things in the economy in this Taylor framework. It's not like a hawk all the time view. Uh, but it says currently that like the Fed should raise interest rates to 5% basically right away. And that is a view that was a kind of predominant way of thinking until really, really, really recently. It would say that, look, you can't let inflation get above 2% or stay there for any meaningful period of time because people will come to believe that there's inflation, right? That there's going to be like right now, like the price of cars has gone up a lot. So you could have a car buying frenzy. Right. In which everyone who is even vaguely thinking about buying a car is like, holy shit, car prices are going up faster than incomes. Uh, I better buy a car like as soon as I possibly can. And then the prices go up and up and up. And like we're in a disaster. So the Fed needs to like slam the brakes right now, even if it throws people out of work. We need to make it that like you just cannot afford a car. And that's the only way we're going to get this back done. And it sounds crazy. But like, I think it's important to understand that like that was how we were doing things like really, really recently that like not just it would be undesirable to have three to four percent price growth, but that it would be like apocalyptic. And at any cost, we had to stop that from happening. Yeah. And I think the uh, a critique of the, the kind of inflation targeting regime, with, which involved the Taylor rule that became influential and started kind of early in the 2010s, it was. It wasn't started with the economic blogosphere, but people like yourselves, Ryan Event, many others, uh, were, were very influential in, in pushing the argument was that, you know, the inflation target becomes like a ceiling, which is another way of saying about, you know, your target metaphor, which is to say that if you get that nervous about inflation being over target, you're not actually aiming at a target. You have a ceiling now and inflation will always be a little bit below. And as Powell pointed out in 2019, you know, if you're always a little bit below target, you can actually start to drift down inflation expectations and thus inflation will drop and thus rates have to drop lower. And you end up in this kind of negative dynamic where you're always on the underheated side. You're always like in in the wrong gear on the slow end and you're always never quite getting the economy back to speed as quickly and as fast and robustly as you could. And so having much more an explicit acknowledgement that the Fed wants to err on both sides, understanding that on average, it will hit its target, gives it opportunity to take periods like right now, 
and instead of just saying like the numbers above the number, like the equations, you know, now thrown out, we gotta we gotta stop everything and slam on the brakes and put the economy into a quasi recession to slow things down. You can actually look at it much more holistically and say, okay, is this sectoral? Is this transitory? Is this going to decline? You know, we still retain the tools to slow down economic activity, but it gives us a framework to understand. Like, if we actually think this is transitory, if this is reflecting an economy that is coming back to life so rapidly, it's causing some bottlenecks and supply chain issues, but it will resolve itself. Well, you know, we have the bandwidth to sit this out and wait a little bit to take action, which is important to give the economy time, especially for a recession like this. So I want to pivot a little bit and ask you about kind of big picture theory, because, you know, in addition to being a a great monetary policy knower. You're the author of a book, Freedom from the Market, which we we talked about on this show. And, you know, it's, uh, well, it's not about this, but it's about, you know, the the limits of a market society and, and neoliberalism. And I always get the sense that part of the disjuncture between what you and I have been talking about here and the way some progressive activists see things is that this all doesn't sound freedom from the markety enough to them. Like we're talking about solving problems and making the world a better place, but like nothing has been decommodified, uh, nothing has been redistributed necessarily from anybody. We're like saying some guys on a board need to make somewhat better technocratic decisions and then people can just like get jobs more easily or higher pay. And so I wonder, I mean, because you you're really in this space, you know, that's like critical of the market society. And how do you how do you think about that? I mean, who do you hear from? How do you talk to people? So there's definitely uh, I don't think it is reflected in mainstream journalism or progressive activism, but there is a sort of Marxist critique of, of left Keynesian. So I would consider myself a left Keynesian in my political orientation, my economic orientation. And there's a kind of like Marxist left critique of that, which says like, this ultimately won't work because the battle is between employers and employees and and you can't massage a system that's prone to collapse. And I think that's outside of this conversation. And certainly, I think we can do better on Keynesian economics and then maybe we'll figure that other stuff out later. Yeah, I mean, that's not really what I mean. I, I, I mean more just the sort of psychic, emotional, you know, interpretation that I think like people want to, they want to fight the bad guys on one level. And also they want to bolster. So there was a version, not that they were super left wing, but like there was a version in in late Obama of like a progressive structuralist critique of the economy that was like, look, participation has fallen. And this shows we need new investments in these apprenticeship programs. It shows we need childcare programs. It shows that we need to reduce the, you know, criminal justice systems involvement. And those are all things that progressives would want to do, like regardless of the macroeconomic analysis. And I think the idea that like doing that stuff, that like solving the problems that made progressives want to get involved in politics is like also the key to the labor market. It's, it's just like it's very appealing. Like like who doesn't want to kill two birds with one stone? Yeah, definitely. So there, so the way I experience it, um, and I think it's definitely a strand inside the progressive movement is that they think that there's something sketchy, for lack of a better word. We'll come up with a better one in a minute. But there's something sketchy about what the Federal Reserve is up to when it does monetary policy. They think of low interest rates as causing or exacerbating wealth inequality. 
They think of low rates as a <laughs> subsidy or sop to the banks, ignoring that banks lend spreads. They don't just lend the interest rate, but still like they think something about low interest rates are a sop to the financial system. They think low interest rates are sustaining or otherwise creating bad corporate behavior in terms of a corporate governance that's really focused on shareholders or buybacks and dividends and not on investment. I don't mean to be rude to these people, but there's a little bit of a, a quasi hard, hard money libertarian vagueness to it, where it's like you're messing with something that shouldn't be messed with, and that's causing all these problems. And I think even the people who get it still think, yeah, you might be able to get to full employment, but you're risking a corporate bond bubble or zombie firms or exploding wealth inequality, or you are propping up an unfair corporate system of inequality and extraction at the expense of maybe getting full employment. And, and those people will say like, full employment's good and all, but think of all this other bad stuff you're doing. And there, I think <laughs> those trends existed at higher rates in our economy. Uh, I don't think they're necessarily influenced by it, but uh, but that, that's kind of my read of it before we talk about the strengths and weaknesses of it. Yeah, and, and you know what? I think the some of this is, I think, hard to assess, but the, but the inequality piece is, you know, I, I think more dollars and cents numbers. And, you know, I mean, I, I always know um, Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph and, and Martin Luther King, they were very invested in full employment, right, as a, as a strategy, you know, obviously not as the only thing the civil rights movement cared about, but it was an important plank uh, of, of what they were doing. And then, uh, you know, along came a paper from the New York Fed sometime last year that was like, oh, no, actually, Stimulative monetary policy is bad for racial equality because it's true that it helps people get jobs, but it also makes stock prices go up and white people own most of the stock. And so you see we're exacerbating uh, the racial wealth gap here. And you could run that play with almost any form of inequality, right? Like shares of stock are mostly owned by a relatively small number of people. So anytime the stock market goes up, there's some wealth inequality going up. And that is definitely a thing that happens, right? Like when when the Fed does stimulative monetary policy, the stock market tends to go up. You know, I think people look at that and they say, well, this is not like what we're about. We're, we're trying to fight inequality. Yeah, absolutely. And it's you get the double problem where that the Fed, especially in our in our era of collapsing trust in government and collapsing government competency or at least felt competency, the Fed is effective. Like it does what it does very well. Like there's bureaucrats who are really well informed. They carry out their things. They can set up programs very rapidly. They they seem like they know what they're doing. So there's a real incentive to say like, well, you should also solve these other problems too. So like, why aren't you also fixing? inequality, even though we know how to fix inequality, it's taxes and pre-distribution and redistribution. Like there's, you know, when I think of the reason our economy has gotten so unequal in the last 40 or 50 years, I think it's like the top marginal tax rate went from 80 to 40%. You know, the labor movement was decimated, the real value of the minimum wage declined, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. I don't think of like the slow declining value of interest rates, which is also an international phenomena, as particularly being the problem. And if anything, uh, new research argues that wealth inequality, which we've created through all these market structures, uh, has led to declining interest rates. So I worry a little bit that like it is true that monetary policy, it's like, you know, the minimum wage, if we want to raise the minimum wage, which we absolutely should, it increases wages for low wage workers. And then there's a fight about its effects of employment where, you know, like leading evidence says there's very minimal impact on employment, but that's like a one dimensional impact point. Do you know what I mean? Like that's 
you can argue that trade-off pretty straightforward, like employers versus workers and so on, where monetary policy goes in and it boosts the economy, but the economy itself is very unequal. So it will have effects that are very unequal in some dimensions, but other dimensions like employment, it's really impactful for the people who can get jobs in her economy, given that we're a capitalist system. So the trade-offs are much more complicated and, and robust there. But I do worry when you spend too much time there, you just lose your eye on the prize. Like if we're worried about wealth inequality, we have taxes, we can fund the IRS, we can tell the IRS to do other things in a way that's way more effective than trying to keep the economy in a perpetual quasi recession to reduce inequality, I guess, is, is what they're saying. Right. Well, I mean, this is, this is what I thought, right? You know, um, the stock market went down like a lot in 2008. And so wealth inequality declined. But like it was a huge catastrophe, right? And you could say, I, I think a like really shitty right winger would be like, see, you guys got what you wanted, right? And it was terrible. But like it's not. That's not what the progressives wanted. What progressives wanted is higher taxes and like maybe some other things. But like they, they wanted to address economic inequality in a redistributive way that would raise the floor as well as as lowering the ceiling. And, you know, we, we talked a lot about the climate stuff on a Tuesday's show. I don't want to get too deep into it. But, but this just strikes me as actually two manifestations of a similar problem, which is that it is challenging to get progressive bills passed in Congress. Legislating in the United States is hard. The way that cultural politics has intersected with the way the Senate map is drawn has made it especially hard to get progressive bills passed through Congress. So it is extremely uh, appealing to try to find ways to do things that don't involve passing laws through Congress. And it's it's important. I mean, it's important to look at, at all the agencies and what they do and what their powers are. But like, you can't really imagine a world in which we significantly reduce economic inequality that doesn't involve like a congressional majority that wants to significantly reduce inequality. And if you have that, like they can just do it, right? Like that's what Congress is for. And if you don't have it, it's like, well, you're just like, you're, you're not going to succeed, right? Like right now, it seems like Democrats, it's like, it's like pulling teeth to get, you know, a dozen House moderates to agree to like popular tax increases on the wealthy. And it's, that's like it's what happens when you have an eight seat majority. It's like it's it's really challenging. And like, I wish those eight guys would get their shit together. But also, like, if the polls had been right and Democrats had a 37 seat majority or whatever, you know, they would just raise taxes more. Yeah, absolutely. And you you do see this mission creep and it, it happens in a lot of different ways. Last year, um, the Fed launched a program called the Municipal Lending Facility, which was designed to make sure that there is liquidity for state cities and municipalities that wanted to, to borrow money, uh, which they did at record rates. And the Fed successfully brought down rates, though, did not do many loans. It was almost like a whatever it takes kind of moment where the fact that they said they would backstop the market, even though the initial setup wasn't very strong and didn't even impact a lot of places in the initial setup, the fact that they were willing to do it brought down rates. But you know, bringing down rates doesn't get money to municipalities and states and cities. And the CARES Act did not have money for that. And then by the end of the summer, when it became clear that money wasn't going to go to states and munis, there became demands that was like the Fed should just give money to states and municipalities. And I'm very sympathetic to that. I'm very glad the American Rescue Plan gave so much money to those subfederal governments. But like the Fed can't really do that. And you, you do see that mission creep in a lot of different ways. And look, the trade-offs work in a lot of different ways, right? So like if the Fed did raise rates to try to tackle inequality, well, 
like they might harm the wealth value of certain kinds of assets, but suddenly like people who want to lend money can now lend it at a higher rate. So like other parts of finance are better off. Uh, people who are going to make new claims are, are in a better shape. Yeah, it might make financial stability more better because like firms might have to do less aggressive lending. But on the other hand, you might have more defaults. So I actually think in terms of managing trade-offs, the Fed doesn't have a lot of tools to handle that very well, but we do have institutions that could. And I agree with you, it's really hard, but I worry we almost take our eyes off the prize if we're going to blame the Fed for wealth inequality when we've let our capital taxation system wither for decades. And it's, you know, I, I, and, uh, worth saying, right, I mean, the um, cross-sectional point, you know, you make is telling, right, that if you look at the levels of inequality that exist in different developed countries, uh, there's quite a bit of variation. Interest rates vary a little bit between developed countries, but like it's pretty similar. Like the trend to lower rates is happening everywhere, but tax policy and labor union policy vary a lot between countries. And, you know, what you see in wealthy countries with more egalitarian distributions of income is they have higher taxes. They have higher taxes across the board. They have higher taxes on the rich and they have stronger labor unions and usually a, a sectoral bargaining system. They don't have dramatically different interest rates from the United States. There's no there's no example you can point to of a country that like central banked its way to an egalitarian wage structure. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you see it with um, income inequalities up uh, or inequality in general is up a little bit everywhere, but it's up a ton in the United States and it's up a lot in the UK, which are both places that had a government that reduced top marginal tax rates aggressively and weakened labor aggressively. You know, as you said, interest rates are near zero or have been declining for decades and not everyone has the stock market we have. So a lot of people talk about low interest rates on the stock markets implicit in that. Fed paper from last year about uh, wealth inequality. And, you know, Japan's been at zero interest rates for a very long time, and they do a lot of unconventional monetary policy like QE. They pioneered it, and we're learning from them. But their stock market is not wild and, and, and high like ours because our legal system, the shareholder revolution, our whole system of corporate governance is designed to increase the value of shareholders and give shareholders a lot of autonomy over the firm and its decision making. Our stock market is way more concentrated than it's been in decades past. That has nothing to do with interest rates because interest rates, to the extent a lot of people mean these arguments, they mean that interest rates just mechanically increase asset values of like like stocks, but that wouldn't increase concentration. We know why the stock market is concentrated. It's because a couple firms control a lot more economic activity, uh, firms like Amazon and so forth. And that's a whole other weeds conversation, but that's that's not because like the Fed is more or less full employment focused. That's because of the way we've structured our market systems to allow for that kind of activity. And also, I mean, the Fed is not the whole reason that the stock market matters for inequality is that the distribution of stock ownership is so unequal. But that's not the Fed's doing right. Like, they, And it's not a, like intrinsic property of uh, markets, right? Like ownership of housing assets is not equal. Um, this is a capitalist society, uh, but it is relatively equal compared to ownership of shares of stock. You could have in the Bank of Japan, right, is like buying stock. And, you know, there's there's lots of things you could do on a more egalitarian basis there if that's what you wanted to do. But it's like, I don't know, it, you have to win the political 
argument, right? Like you could pass you could pass laws of various kinds to create a more egalitarian structure, but it's hard to just fiddle with interest rates to get there. Uh, whereas fiddling with interest rates and and how you talk about forward looking inflation has like a lot to do with how people get jobs in the private sector, especially people with less formal education or, you know, otherwise kind of weaker, weaker resumes to get back to where we were going. And, you know, people, um, I think, uh, these days try to be a little bit self-aware about forms of privilege that they benefit with, things like that. But like, this is an area in which I think uh, people would would benefit from a little bit of self-reflection about, you know, labor market challenges that are faced by people who are kind of in the bottom half, the bottom third of the like desirability schema that's in employers' heads. Yeah, and, and I'd I'd add to that to build an egalitarian society, full employment is both a, a goal of it, but also an important catalyst to it, and very important baseline to help get it. You know, when you think of periods in which the labor movement was most active, like on individual years, it's periods in which employment is increasing or rapidly increasing, and workers feel they're not getting their fair share of it, right? So you think of like 1935, uh, you think of parts of the 19th century. It's not in bust when unemployment's very high that you know you get worker activism. Uh, it's when things are getting better and workers can see themselves getting more of the fruits of their labor and they have outside options and you know there's more workers and they and employers are more dependent on them because of full employment. So it is an important input into building a egalitarian society. You even saw a little bit of it, even in our weaker labor times, you even saw some of it towards the end of the Great Recession, where you saw much more worker activism after 2016 than, uh, and, you know, even you know, 2018, 2019, than you saw when unemployment was 10% uh, at the height of the Great Recession. And I think that's really important. And also, like, when the economy is richer and the economy is doing well, people are more secure, so they're more willing to take chances on programs or redistribution or making sure other people are included, as opposed to periods of austerity where it's like, I got to take care of me and my own. Screw your taxes. Screw your health care. I just got to get mine. And, you know, fighting that austerity mindset, fighting that austerity economy is really important because it's the central Keynes insight. There is enough to go around. We can afford the things that we can do. And it's important to create a macroeconomics that allows us to do that. All right, fantastic. Um, I think I think we'll leave it there. Uh, but thank you so much, Mike Consul from the Roosevelt Institute. Um, thanks as always to our sponsors. Thanks to our producer, uh, Ness Smith-Savdov. And the weeds will be back on Tuesday. Tuesday.